Hi, I'm Heather. Eve, Steve, Roper, some of you may know of It's Nice to Hear You podcast, and I'm this week's guest on Metapod. You're listening to Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them, hosted by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May. Hey, Wendy, and hello, listeners. Welcome to Metapod. Hi, Kev, and greetings, Metapod listeners. Yes, welcome back to the show. We have a rather interesting podcast to unpack this week, don't we? Uh, Well, we always do, Wendy. Okay, Kevin, good point. But especially interesting this week because our guest has one podcast where she's kind of two different people. Yeah, okay, that is true. So joining us this week is Heather Lee. Heather is the creator of a podcast with a unique social experiment at its centre, a virtual matchmaking scheme that relied on voice only as a means to connect people who are interested in dating. And while the matchmaking experiment that Heather devised is what underpins the podcast, It's Nice to Hear You, the podcast is about more than dating. It's about human connection, the communication, thoughts and behaviours that make and break our relationships with each other over time. When Heather was not being Heather during this project, she was Eves. That's Eves D. Roper, spelled just like you would spell eavesdropper. You know, the word used to describe someone who secretly listens in on a conversation without others knowing it. Right, except that Eves, or Heather, had full consent to listen. As the matchmaker, she exchanged the voice memos that were being created at her direction. The voice memos were created and shared between selected pairs from a small group of people that were hoping to match up and develop a meaningful relationship with someone. And without giving too much away before you listen to It's Nice to Hear You or our conversation with Heather, listeners get to do a bit of their own eavesdropping on Heather and the trials and tribulations of her own human connections. All right, let's get into it, Kev. Start the tape. Heather Lee of It's Nice to Hear You, welcome to Metapod. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. (laughs) So we have two questions to start off, and this is to cater a bit to the folks who haven't heard your podcast yet, and a bit to those who have. And the first question comes from me, the second question will come from Kev, and you can decide which to answer first. (laughs) But uh, my question is, is this a podcast for a listener looking for entertainment, self-help, or something else? And Kevin? Yeah, and the second question is, what was your perfect moment yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, so I stopped recording those, which I actually, you know, maybe I should start doing it again because it did make me very perceptive about my surroundings. Um, so I think also the practice of writing it down, thinking about it and telling someone else was just so, like, so helpful and reflective. So yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, and kind of triggering the, the, the good memories. Let me think it's not, <laughs> it's a work related, but it is the first thing that came to mind. Um, I do a 
retail consulting. That's kind of my day job. And we had a big presentation actually just an hour ago that finished. And yesterday we locked down the slides and I got a lot of good feedback because it was like really cutting it close because the meeting was today. Um, but the perfect moment, it was really good to, you know, know that everyone bought in and it was a big collaborative uh, exercise over the last three weeks. So, you know, having everyone's buy-in and positive feedback leading into this big meeting was, I would say, a pretty good moment for yesterday. Okay. Okay. And the first question, you can't dodge that one. So is it, yeah. is, the, is, it a, is it a podcast for listeners who wants entertainment, self-help or something else? Yeah, that's a great question too. And I, I mean, I, I guess hopefully it's not a cop-out answer, but I'm going to say all of the above. That's really the intention. The way I designed the show is at the intersection of a lot of different genres. That's how I conceived it, at the intersection of lots of different spaces, topics. So, you know, there's a lot of self-help tidbits and insights, hopefully, that people can extract from it. Um, hopefully it is entertaining because it is written as a narrative. Um, there are stakes and there are characters. So hopefully it is entertaining in that way. But I did want it to be a personal memoir that was also a dating show that was also, there's like a fair bit of science in it. Um, mm-hmm. interviews with, doctors and psychologists and there's like some voice analytics information so it's like a little bit of science so yeah in the end I always describe it as a show about human connection so mm-hmm. hopefully it does convey that and can be entertaining and self-help and all of the other things so how did you decide that you wanted to connect with your listeners through your storytelling tone and style Yeah, uh, it definitely changed. The writing process was the hardest part to figure out how to tell the story so that it comes together cohesively uh, in an engaging way. What was fixed is the experiment and all of the tape that I had from the experiment in the very beginning. I did conceive it to be a anonymous experiment that was voice only. And I did know that I wanted to make a podcast. Um, Mm -hmm what kind of podcast, the tone, the styling, like all of that. I didn't know in the beginning, I've never written, I've never made a podcast. So I didn't understand just even writing editorially for sound, like all of those things I didn't know, but I, what, what did work in my benefit was that I knew that this would be communicated through sound. Sound is obviously so important for the experiment, but also the way that listeners would hear the story is through the podcast medium. So I was able to engineer the experiment in a way that was optimized for for sound because I knew I wanted to make a podcast. In terms of how the story came together and the writing, that took like the most part of six to eight months, I would say. Um, in terms of structuring, what each of the episodes would stand for, what are the beats of each episode? You know, my initial thought was like, oh, this can't be so hard. I'm going to have so much amazing tape. And I did from the, <laughs> from the participants. I'd like hundreds of hours and they were all very interesting to me. So I was like, you know, I could just montage a bunch of clips together. And I tried that. It was horrible, horrible. Like there was no characters, you know, no one wanted to just listen to random people. So then 
pretty quickly I figured out I have to have characters, but like which characters? So there's a lot of thought that went into how they were selected. Um, eventually, the piece about my personal story that was the the last part that kind of came into play when we tried the way with just the participants. There was still like something missing, and I worked with a lot of wonderful editors in the process to inform the writing and make sure that it was engaging. Yeah, in the end, you know, it's like it's I I, I had to write about my own story and and kind of view myself as a character. Mm-hmm. So it, it came together. I guess I would say kind of slowly, but all of the processes of working through. The characters and the stakes and the beats, all of that uh, was definitely necessary work. Let me let me ask you this, Heather: if you if it's possible as the host and the creator of your podcast to kind of take a step back and think objectively about it, do you think listening to the whole thing, it is now a story about you, or is it a story about the experiment? Overwhelmingly, it's tied together by my personal mm-hmm. story. I think that's what gives the six episodes connection in between the episodes there's a narrative arc um and that's my story that ties it together yeah let's talk a little bit about putting the experiment together itself when you you talked in one of the episodes about how difficult it for example it was to recruit if recruits the right word men yeah to participate were there any other challenges that you kind of came across with people willing to take part questions that arose because you know this is an experiment that's done by an individual that's not attached to a university and I'm saying this as respectfully as I can lots of social experiments usually tied to an organization did you kind of come across any awkward questions or did you have to do any reassuring to the participants when you were kind of throwing them into this melting pot almost Yeah, as far as reticence with like, oh, you're not from an official institution, like you're a random person, essentially. Uh, No, I didn't get any like reticence from that perspective, because the way I framed the experiment, like even the branding and the colors at a website for people to fill out, like it was very conversational and like that people knew that I was a person versus an institution. I wasn't trying to frame it like here's a super duper scientific approach. I did include the interest in science. And, you know, I mentioned Professor Aaron who created the 36 questions and all of the work. I mean, I just like referenced it versus going too deep into the science because I knew that if I like really nerded out on that stuff, (laughs) the people I would want to participate would not be so interested either. So yeah, no one was concerned about the fact that I wasn't part of an official institution or university. Um, And then the second part, the challenges, yeah, getting enough people to sign up was definitely a challenge. Getting a decent amount of gender balance was a challenge. There was like three times as many women as men. But the people who did self-select into this process was like hyper game to do it. Like if you're someone who randomly saw a post and I tried lots of different channels to find people, right? Like Craigslist, Nextdoor, you might not have Nextdoor in the UK, but um, it's like similar. Oh, you do? Okay. So you know what that is. Um, So yeah, you know, if you're someone who like sees a call out, like an ad to participate in an anonymous voice only, like there's so many weird things about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> and if you're game to do it, fill out yeah. this, you know, application, you're going to be game for like the prompts and the whole experience. So I think that worked well because it's like so niche and different. The people who do resonate with the ad, they're already bought in. So can we talk about the men for a minute here? Mm -hmm. Um, What would have solved your problem? What would have made it super easy to get all the men you wanted as quick as you wanted them? Oh, pictures for sure. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's, I'm not being just like cheeky about it. I mean, I asked all of my male friends, like, why is this, why am I not getting any men? It is kind of the construct of the experiment. Like it's anonymous. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's also something biological about that too. It's, you know, if there are no images, it's, it's just like a different proposition and men are just like less, less enticed, the average man, I will say. And this is not like the, just true for me, other experiences, maybe not only voice only, but like other dating experiences. There's one called this is dating, which is also a podcast, they also had a hard time finding men. There's other like niche matchmaking programs that in my research, like they also have a hard time with men and they like wouldn't charge for men, but they'll charge for women. It's kind of the reverse Mm -hmm. of the nightclubs. Right. So in your opinion, it would have fundamentally changed the, the model of the experiment and the the method mm -hmm. that you took. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't willing to compromise on the no <laughs> visuals. Um, and I, w- I didn't spend too much time, like, trying to figure out how to solve for scale. I wasn't trying to solve for scale. All I need to do is, like, get 100 people. That's not that hard in the grand scheme of things. And I did get to 100 people eventually. I, I think, you know, it's just tapping into the right groups. There are definitely men who resonated. I mean, I found men who did resonate. So it's just finding more people like them. I think it's a little bit hard at the time when I was doing it because that was peak pandemic. That was like April, 2020, when Mm -hmm. no one was vaccinated. I couldn't really like actually go out and meet people and picnics. And there are these, there are these men's groups that exist. Um, I don't know if you've heard of them or are familiar with them, but there are like meetup groups and men kind of talk together and support each other. Like, yeah, I think tapping into those, I would have definitely found more men. What was the most surprising feedback you received, perhaps in the experiment part, but also in the the podcast feedback as well? For the experiment, I was most surprised by how willing people were to engage in the prompts. Like the prompts didn't show up as much in the podcast because that kind of detracted with the narrative beats of everything. But an example of a prompt, I and I sent them every day to the participants mm-hmm. and they were always optional. And an example is like, go to your bookshelf and cover your eyes, pick out a book at random, find um, a passage and record that passage to your match. I can't remember if I included that one or not in the podcast, but it would be like interactive elements like that, that always served a purpose. And the purpose could be like inject a playful energy, share something about this person that is not going to come up organically. Like sometimes the prompts are just a list of questions. Like, 
to whatever extent you're comfortable with, share something about your sexuality with your match. That could be like comfort with intimacy. Uh, like uh, I had like different um, opening questions sure. to, to help them with that conversation. Other times it's more like the book examples, like an actual activity. Another one is like dress up in your date outfit. The, the outfit that you would wear when you meet your match for the first time and take a picture of that outfit and send it to me. And then I would share that with their match. So like not the clothes on them, mm-hmm. um, obviously, but just like the picture of the clothes. And that was important because I wanted to make sure that there were enough details to trigger the imagination. Uh, you know, just seeing someone's apartment, seeing someone, how they lay out their clothes, the type of clothes that they lay out, like that gives you so much visual imagination to like go off of. You did mention imagination quite a bit in the podcast. And, um, you know, this idea that when you're dealing with a voice only communication that that triggers that and that that also then leads to the idea of possibility. Did you ever see imagination leading to a disconnect or disgust not quite like as severe as like disgust but it definitely could go awry <laughs> perhaps a bit sense. strong but <laughs> <laughs> so it could go negatively in the sense sure. that you're imagining in your head and you're creating this fantasy which is just not true and it becomes very one-sided mm-hmm. and like a small example of that uh i think i i included this like the irish couple um, I don't know if you remember, I shouldn't even say couple because they like didn't really go anywhere, but the, the, they spoke Irish. It was like such a coincidence, this American guy who is Irish and I was trying to learn the language. And then this girl who was based in the UK, who was also a participant and she like is Irish Catholic and they like exchange passages in Irish, um, a few, like, I don't know, four or five, something like that. And then she just stopped responding. And I think it could have been very easy for this guy to, and I would have been as well, like out of everyone who choose to participate in this random experiment, I get mashed up with this girl who happens to also speak Irish, um, a culture that I'm obsessed with. And we exchange conversations and voice memos in Irish, like, what are the chances of that? And, you know, it's very easy to be bought into that fantasy. And when she didn't respond, I'm sure it was very heartbreaking. He sent like multiple messages after she didn't respond. And even at the end of the experiment, you know, he sent me a note saying, you know, it was like unfortunate that she didn't respond. And yeah, it's like much higher highs and lower lows. Was that difficult for you to here for sure because you know i'm the person who engineered it and initially i was like oh there should be a better alternative to dating apps like there are a lot of you know issues with how dating apps uh make money and just the business model of it is not totally aligned with finding compatibility right Mm -hmm. but there are great things about dating apps too it just opens up so much access and it's easy to engage with. It's a 
mass market scalable tool. So initially I was like, oh, dating apps are horrible. I could find, I, I could try to test a better alternative. In the end, it's better. What this small experiment showed is that it's better in some things, but it's less good at other things. Just the, going back to the higher highs and lower lows again, you know, depending on what you want. Each experience is going to self-select for their own audience. Um, but I think what is going to make it better for everybody is just having more choice. And right now there isn't a whole lot of choice for single people who want to find a partner outside of dating apps. Yeah. Let me ask you, did you do any analysis on perhaps what turned people off? By which I mean, were there common types of conversations that just inevitably made people go, okay, well, this was fun for three or four messages and now I'm just fed up with it. For example, someone was showing off about their career or their prowess in sport or something like that. Were there any things that you came across that you could kind of illustrate as being things that people generally don't like to hear in those kind of first three or four messages when you're getting to know each other really kind of early stages? Not that I could say collectively, one, because just the scale. Uh, Like I was not working with a ton of numbers. I think it would like not, I can't say that reliably what turned off people. Like most of my feedback, I think it's just very anecdotal and very idiosyncratic, like meaning it's unique to each person, right? Like, you know, one person got really busy with their job and they just like have no time to commit continue to commit to this like people's priorities change it was like peak pandemic so I can't say that there's anything like all encompassing this was true for everybody and that goes to um dating in general and the science behind compatibility that's why algorithms basically there's no science that says algorithms work because what you think is attractive may not be attractive to someone else you know, what you think is vulnerable may be very different for someone else. So like, it's very hard to just say these people will be a great match because of all of these other factors that we've seen in the data. Mm. I mean, talking of vulnerability, I mean, do, do you sense that perhaps people were behaving differently through the project because the vast majority of them were either quarantining, isolating, or whatever term you want to use during the pandemic. So, for example, their emotions were already being tested because of the very environment that we were all living through in those three or four months after the onset of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Do you think that there was perhaps more of a need for them to get this thing to work, this this Mm -hmm. match that you had created for them, a desire Mm -hmm. for it to work perhaps better or more efficiently or quickly than other dating methods that they've used. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the pandemic, just everyone being lonely, kind of stuck in their homes, it's a big emotional shock. And I actually talked to a psychologist about this. Um, mm-hmm. there, there are studies that show like, if you see a scary movie or a thriller, you're more likely to uh, like, quote unquote, fall in love with someone. Um, That's not quite the right scientific words, but, you know, there's an experiment, a famous experiment that Professor R. Aaron did a couple decades ago, 
where he had a research assistant like stand across this like wobbly narrow bridge and then these guys had to like walk across the bridge and it's like a little frightening um because it's like high and wobbly and and then at the end she's like thanks for and they framed it as like some other psychology experiment not related to dating and romance and at the end they get off the bridge and she's there and she hands them a card and it's like thanks for participating let me know if you have questions and the other control group was basically like not a scary bridge um i forgot what it was but it was basically like you know you walk a sidewalk or something like very benign and the group with the scary bridge definitely reached out in a more romantic context than they would have uh, on the control group so there's like a lot of science behind just you know what happens to your brain chemically after a high trigger event um, that increases your propensity to be more romantically or seeking romantic connection and you could argue that quarantine and being thrown in a different lifestyle all of a sudden the world dealing with something this new and uncertain that's all very triggering for everybody um personally everyone's stuck at home you know the people who participated are in their late 20s early 30s you used to be social you can't see your friends like everyone's lonely Uh, and on top of that you're probably already lonely because you're single and you know if you're like trying to to date right so now it's even harder And then the third element is everyone has time. I think that was by far in comparison to the other two, that is what worked to my advantage because it, you know, the three pairs that I highlighted in the podcast, they were like talking for 45 minutes. They were like recording 45 minute messages every day. So that's like you sitting down somewhere recording, and then you have to listen to someone else's recording. That was also like 45 minutes. So that's already like an hour and a half. And then it's like the brain power of you're not just like sitting down and recording you're like reading my email you're like thinking about the prompt that I suggested maybe you're like digesting what the other person said you're thinking about what you're gonna say so it's like a lot more than an hour and a half every day so and this was every day for 30 days so that was a lot of time I I mean if I did that these days when the world is more open you know, I don't. I think it would have been harder because it's a big time commitment. Yeah, maybe not a question, but just a comment. I wonder whether just the very process of what they were doing, which was just sending voice memos, there was just an element of a connection with anybody. It doesn't yeah, need totally. to necessarily lead to romance or yeah. matchmaking. It was just this unusual concept and it was quite fun and nice. And, oh, yeah, I know it's part of a big matchmaking thing, but it's actually quite nice to just talk to anybody really mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and have them respond yeah okay so when I explained this story to Kevin I remember catching myself saying that the matchmaking part to me was actually not the most important part that it was about communication I mean matchmaking implies a, a romantic connection but would you say that there's a fair amount in this story for anyone to learn about other types of communication and relationships that are not romantic? Mm, That's a good question. I hope so. I think there are definitely applications just understanding, you know, what vulnerability actually means. Like that was a huge unlock for me. Like 
vulnerability means that you're risking something. It's like not just sharing anything and everything. You know, there's a difference between vulnerability versus being open, right? Like I think that could work in any type of relationship, friendships, um, multi-generational relationships. Yeah. And what you said, communication, having empathy for other people. I think I like being able to kind of see what's going on with all of the matches and just like people communicate so differently. Like I communicated so differently and having this privilege of eavesdropping into other people's intimate conversations that taught me a lot about empathy, like how I choose to communicate and share my feelings. What is so different from how someone else does it. And yeah, it's definitely an emotional education. Mm-hmm. So throughout, I noticed that you use this phrase to say, uh, this is what blank sounds like. And here you could fill in like, this is what vulnerability sounds like. This is what the absence of it sounds like. This is what getting to know someone sounds like. I mean, I was thinking that those are often situations where there's an emotion attached or feeling that you might not hear or might not be audible or, you know, it's something you feel. I mean, how was, how was Eve's assessing those emotions? Everyone could interpret it differently, right? Um, I think I had my own narrative playing for everyone. Like, here's how you started. Here's where you are. Like, here's what I think the stakes are. Like, maybe one example is all of a sudden, they go from 10 minute messages to 15 minute messages to 20 minute messages, or all of a sudden, like the, the girl responds with a much longer message than her partner. Cause when you start out, everyone tries to be on the same length as the other person. So it's like when you take in terms of, you know, your voice memos, right? Like if I send you a five minute message, you're going to send me like a five minute message back. You're not going to send me like a 30 minute message back. So it's kind of that, pacing and Mm -hmm. for me like when someone steps out of that and takes a risk to like okay I will signal that I really do enjoy talking to you or even just verbally signaling that that's really exciting and I feel like that's kind of an indication of oh this is me being vulnerable or this is me like sharing affection it's a process of hearing what that sounds like and the second dimension to that is the voice analytics that I talked about. I mean, I partnered with behavioral AI and they analyzed, they, they ingested all of the hours of audio into their algorithm. They partner with like banks and Fortune 500 companies on their um, customer service hotlines. And they have this real-time technology that tells their staff like, oh, this person is feeling angry. Like this person is happy or whatever. And that there's an element of training that goes on with that. So you're, you can make sure that your staff is saying the right things to not trigger <laughs> these angry emotions. Right. Um, and then Just it's also thinking about myself calling customer service. <laughs> right. Like maybe initially you're like hyper angry, but then after some interaction, you're like more calmed, maybe. like ideally. <laughs> so anyway, they have their technology to, assess the emotions behind Mm -hmm. audio. So they looked at all of my audio and we were able to map out like, 
here's um, the peaks and valleys and how it trended over the 30 days. It's a little hard given the sample size to conclude like this is exactly what happened. I did have some examples that I felt like reliably they're they're defendable because I I can't make sweeping judgments um, and claims with so few sample size. But that was another layer that can definitely be analyzed more. The so the technology that you used or someone helped you use, I mean what what impressed you about that or surprised you? One is just the awareness that this exists. And that was mm-hmm. the purpose of why I wanted to include that in the show. It didn't help with the narrative at all, but for me it was important that I share like all of this advanced technology and nuances around our voice, all of this is like perceptible and that exists. Yeah. The fact that there is technology that can tell us like they, they sense that you're happy or sad, how open you are like that is just like, so eye opening to me when I read that and eventually talked to them. Do you trust that it works? Um, I think for certain use cases, dating is not evolved enough to be kind of reliably used in an actual like therapy session or anything like that. The science is definitely trending towards that direction. Um, Part of the challenge is that they just don't have enough intimate data to train the algorithm, right? The reason why the call center technology exists and why they're focusing on that is because there's a lot of the data that exists and they're just, you know, it's benign, like customer service call conversation. And there's a lot of revenue opportunities there. It's like you, you help these fortune 500 companies like assess their phone conversations. There's some use cases where they, they train the staff, like here's when you want to extend this mortgage loan, because this is when the customer is feeling this way. That makes sense. I mean, it's a little yeah. opportunistic, but you know, this is, this technology exists. Uh, right now, it's not really being applied to, to dating because there's just not enough voice data of like people actually on dates, right, for the technology to evolve. But it's definitely getting there. How did you, Heather, consider oversight of the project? By which I mean, um, and to go back to one of the things we talked about right at the beginning about, you know, this wasn't an academic study, Um I studied social science at university, um, uh, so did Wendy. And when you do research, you have very firm parameters about what you need to observe with your participants. So if you're seeing certain types of behavior, you step in and you pull them out, for example. So did Mm -hmm. you have any of that kind of in mind as to, you know, because it would be fair to say you had a tremendous amount of responsibility putting people together like this. So did you think about if I hear certain triggers this is where I end it for this particular pair? Or did you just think, I'm going to see how it goes? And if I sense that there is something that I need to intervene here and just cut it off, then I'll do so. Yeah, it was definitely more the latter. As far as um, liability, because they were anonymous and everything was going through me and Mm -hmm. They send all of their voice memos to me, right? Like if they mentioned any personally identifiable information, I would cut it out of the tape before I shared it. Um, They didn't have their own, like they weren't even using their names. Like everyone had an acronym, right? They didn't have their contact information. It was only in the very end um, after the last day where I sent them 
you know, email separately, like, hey, if you want to continue conversations, let me know because it's a double opt-in process. So, you know, at that point, it's, you know, they're taking on the responsibility of being connected personally to the to, to their match. But during the beginning and like throughout the 30 days, it was very controlled because no one had access directly. I suppose a follow-up to that is when you were listening, because you got all the memos in each day and then you mm-hmm. would share them out to their match. Did you feel that you had some responsibility that if you felt that someone sounded vulnerable, for example, that mm-hmm. you would intervene and just say, okay, that's enough. I think we've we've gone to we've gone far enough with this. Uh no, no, that never happened. Oh, that's great. And, I just wondered yeah. whether you know the... Right. No, and you know, the way I set it up, it's it's it wouldn't be fair to the participants if I did intervene in that way. Um, I mean, if like something horrible happens, like, oh, I'm going to do something violent to you because you said this, then it's mm-hmm. like, that's very obvious, but yes. you know, just like any other subjective filtering on my end, I feel like that's not fair to the participants. Okay. And shifting gears a little bit. I mean, I, I wonder how the experiment would have worked out pre-internet days. So there is a a generation or maybe multiple generations now that are very used to swipe left, swipe right, leaving voice memos, just the familiarity with the technology. And I wonder whether you would have got different results or a different, a completely different type of process if it had been pre-internet. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Um, Just because our familiarity with technology kind of feeds into almost the entire process of matchmaking now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did very consciously lean away from any user experience that resembled a dating app, like any sort of gesturing. And that's kind of like people who use dating apps understand the gesturing of like swiping, right? Yeah. Like even just the, how the app is designed, it's already getting us into that headspace. Um, right. And after the show launch, like some people have asked me like, do you want to create a dating app? Like I'll invest if you create a dating app and for the behaviors that I'm trying to incent, which is, you know, getting people to spend longer time with each other to get to know each other better and not like doing this quote unquote superficial filtering in the beginning, like that, that's just kind of opposite behaviors from dating apps. And it's with that type of form factor and user experience, like we're going to fall back into that type of behavior. So if I want to trigger a different outcome, it has to be a totally different experience from the dating app. Like even myself, um, you know, if I went on a dating app today, I'm sure I would like go back to those default behaviors just because the user experience is so, and I'm like so conditioned by it that I think it's hard to get out of that mindset, even though like I've learned so much and I know better and like, blah, blah, blah. But just the form factor itself is so powerful. You know, the way I designed this experiment was a long winded way of answering your question, but the way I designed it is one to like really make it as different as possible to a dating app experience. right? Right. Like it's voice only. You're like not really like engaging with any app. All of the language is very different. The terminology, like I try to 
just like don't even associate with a dating app because if you have any association, you're going to like be easier to fall into that headspace. So the second part, like pre-internet day, yeah, maybe that version would be like letters, writing letters. Like obviously it would be hard to record sound, but you know, letters yeah. back and forth. Um, I, I did a lot of research about personal ads. That's like a hugely fascinating topic to me. Um, yeah. you know, like back in the eighties, people write personal ads. Um, mm. That was going to be that was going to be my next question. You know, letter oh, writing yeah. is, is is as old as multi millennia, but that that does seem perhaps a, a logical for fear of what season two might be. But that does seem like what season two could be is, you know, just seeing how the connections might work when people have only got text to read. They don't even have a voice this time. They've just got the words or the creativity of people's words. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, like. I, I I didn't really lean into voice because of the modality. It was like partly because of quarantine. Like yeah. you know, people couldn't see each other. This was an accessible tool that I could that didn't take a lot of money. So it was partly the practicality of what I could feasibly accomplish, uh, you yeah. know, logistically, operationally too. The issue around singling out a single modality is that there's inherent unfairness. Like you might be a great communicator. You might love talking on the phone and I not. And I, I'm just like, that's not fair to me because it's not my preferred medium or like letter writing. Like I might love texting. I might be great with words and someone else just might not. So I think like if I was really doing a business um, or just a commentary on the dating industry overall, it's just making it more accessible with lots and lots of diverse experiences. So you mentioned there, I think, an, an element of time, like going more slow to get to know someone. I think letter writing is sort of perfect in that sense, especially the state of the post office in many countries these days. But um, <laughs> um, are you hopeful about what technology might do to help people connect in the ways they want to that are not necessarily fast or quick. You know, with quarantine, just in general, the social sentiment has become slower too. like appreciating all of the small things and spending time with your family, taking time to reflect like all of that is like very positive for dating culture, which, you know, we do all need to get away from like the immediate swiping and just the transactional nature of it all. Like if you just take the time to get to know someone, something, hopefully something positive will happen. Uh, not a romantic connection, but hopefully a connection, just like getting to know people, like there's inherent reward in that, but it does take time. So in terms of like leveraging technology, uh, for sure. Like even just what we were talking about earlier, like um, sensing violence or um, mm. something dangerous, like technology is a great tool for that. Trigger words, pick up cues, like how tracking someone's behavior, if they have a history of violence, like screening for people like, yeah, technology would be great. I think it's just how it shows up in the experience. And, and trying to get away, trying to encourage people to get away from their default mentality. Like all of the social media has trained us to be very ephemeral and, and quick to react. Like we don't want to invest time 
um, to a lot of things. So it is hard. It's a hard behavior to adjust. But if you have a container that guides people, you know, like what I did, I, I presented a set of rules that are easy to understand. But, you know, it's like the guidelines. If you give them the container and the guidelines, um, hopefully people will self-select into it. We, we kind of reference season two. Are you able to tell us if there is a season two coming and what might be contained within it? Yeah, I'm definitely trying to work on it. It won't happen. It won't be like the exact same thing. And personally, for me, I love podcasting as a medium, but professionally, you know, my, my career is around experiential retail. That's kind of yeah. what I do and my day job. Um, so I, I'm trying to lean into what I'm calling experiential dating. I think it's a very fascinating category and there's huge business potential. I am very interested in in-person interactions, um, mm-hmm. but over time. So, you know, you could, I'm spending a lot of time around immersive theater. So thinking about how immersive theater, the interaction of that and dating could come together. Okay. We've got a couple of quick fire first date questions, if you'd like to okay. play along with this on this. But first, before we get to those, you were so open about him in the last episode. Are we allowed to ask how Arthur is? Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> it's funny to hear uh, Arthur because that's not his real name. Um, right. He's great. Yeah. You know, it's been a very fruitful relationship. Um, we see each other quite often, like a couple times a week. Today's Chinese New Year, so we're hanging out yep. later with his friends. But, yeah, everything is going very well. Okay. Thank you, Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> glad, glad to hear it. So we've just got a couple of quick uh, quick round for you then. So if you were able to identify an ideal location for a first date of your choosing, what would you select? Uh, prior to when I met Arthur, right, um, I would always select a, like a neighborhood bar that I was comfortable with. I drink socially, you know, it's being on a date, it's always nerve wracking. So Personally, if I was given the option to select the location, I would always select like one of two bars near me um, that I was, you know, personally very familiar with. Like, I know exactly where to go. I know how long it takes me to get there. Somewhere quiet, like that has good food and like it's a business that I want to support. So all those things, some, some, some place with familiarity that encourages comfort. Uh, it's funny what you said about knowing how long it takes you to get there because you did admit in one of the first episodes that you're always late for everything oh yes always I like plan to be there (laughs) five minutes late (laughs) okay next question so tell us what's the worst food for a first date oh the worst food oh gosh I mean when you're on a first date I think it's about presenting yourself in the most authentic way And there's a lot of nerves and anxiety. So it's just like avoiding things that could make you more nervous. Right. And that's for everyone to define, like what would make them uncomfortable. Like if seeking something unusual is where you thrive and that makes you comfortable, like then, yeah, find the most unusual foods. But personally, for me, I just want to present myself as my normal so any scents or colors or textures they're all fine for you yeah I mean 
like I'm personally like any sort of foods that I maybe haven't had before, like things that I might not know how to pronounce. Like I, I would maybe <laughs> lean away from that. Okay. Um, last one then conscious of the time here. So you discover on your first date that uh, he hates podcasts. What do you say? I mean, I think that's a great entry into a conversation, right? Like uh, that's a good answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe this person just haven't had the opportunity to learn about like a lot of great podcasts out there. But yeah, I suppose related to that, then. So um, sadly, things with Arthur didn't work out, and you start yeah. in the dating game again. Hypothetical, of course. Would you tell? on your first date that you'd produced this incredible podcast about matchmaking and dating? If it comes up organically. Um, yeah. I mean, I could imagine like people these days, everyone Google each other beforehand, That's like it's pretty <laughs> widely available online. So he might already know I'm not, I'm not someone who's like self-promotional in that way. So if it comes up mm -hmm. organically, it's not, it's also not something I'm trying to hide. Uh, right. Like I use my real name on everything. So yeah, if it comes up organically, sure. Okay. Well, Heather, thank you for your time. And um, it's been nice to meet you and hear yeah, you. Yeah. Likewise. <laughs> yes. Thank you and so much. You. Okay, yeah. Thanks. Same. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good week. Thanks to Heather for talking to us about It's Nice to Hear You and the social experiment behind the podcast that she so cleverly designed. I admit that I'm usually in awe of indie podcast creators, and this is certainly an example in that category, so it was great to hear from her about all the behind-the-scenes stuff. Yes, a really unusual experiment and an interesting listen for anyone curious about what drives human connections. For more info and links related to It's Nice to Hear You, they're in the show notes or on metapodshow.com. And if you liked this episode of Metapod, please leave a rating or review of the show wherever you listen. Coming soon to Metapod, we have Meg Marco of the Extortion Economy podcast. The Extortion Economy is a joint production of MIT Tech Review and ProPublica and examines the money, people and technology behind ransomware. It's a really interesting topic and you'll learn a lot from the podcast and from Meg about the workings of cybercrime. So join us for that next time. And soon enough, we'll once again turn our attention to an excellent music-related podcast, Something About the Beatles. Who doesn't like a bit of the Beatles, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles, likes a lot about the Beatles. 228 plus episodes about the Beatles, in fact. <laughs> yeah, he finds new angles, voices, and Fab Four history to explore in each episode. Never the same old. So... Add Metapod to your favorite shows to get those upcoming episodes in your listening feed. And don't forget to leave Metapod a rating or review wherever you listen. Okay, that's all from us for now. Thank you in advance for all those five-star ratings. Mm -hmm. We'll see you next time. That's it for Metapod this time. Thanks for listening. Metapod will be back soon with another unpacking of the web's most interesting podcasts. But in the meantime, make sure to subscribe at any of the usual places you find your other favourite podcasts. We'd hate for you to miss upcoming episodes, and we'd love it if you left us a review. You can let us know what you think of this episode by going to metapodshow.com. We'll see you next time. Metapod is produced by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May.